Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, we are in the final session of five in a series called Receive. It's really the way of Jesus for men. Uh, if you missed session four, it was basically about friendship, the friendship way of Jesus, level five friendship, deep friendship, transformational friendship, huddling in a consistent basis. It changes our life. It sustains life change. This session, session five, I'm calling it Lift. Great story. My dad, when he passed away, um, his friend Bill Bennett came to the house, shared stories about dad, made fun of him, praised him, laughed with us about him. But he said, there's one word that represented your dad, no matter where he went, what he spoke about, to whoever the audience, he represented lift. A sunny, optimistic disposition that we can make the world better. Lift, it's like the air under the wings and over the wings of an airplane that gives it lift and takes off. God gives us lift and he calls us to lift. That's what this is about, our mission in life. How do we live as men? I was uh, on vacation with my family. Um, it was at a rental house. Only my mom, my wife, my son, and his son were at the house for these last couple days after others had left. And I was heading off to the beach late in the afternoon, like four o'clock, and my son, uh, being a good dad, said, hey, dad, can you make sure you get in off the beach uh, like 5.30 or so, so we can make it to dinner by 6 because I want to get uh, our son to bed soon. He's only three. And uh, I said, sure. And yet my son knew that I'm usually late to things. Well, I didn't leave the beach till the time he said I should be back. I came in late. I showered. Um, I took time. I slowed us up. We finally got to dinner. And uh, I was starving. And they brought this amazing steaming hot kind of honey cornbread to the table. And when they brought it, my son kind of set it to the end of the table away from the condiments um, and my grandson um, and said, hey, can we not eat this? Because I want him to wait for his real meal. Well, I was so hungry, I snatched one when the lady brought it in the first place and kind of munched it. And then later on, I was hungry for another one. So I kind of shielded my grandson in his high chair, snuck my hand and grabbed another piece of cornbread and kind of bent over and ate another one. And my son was like looking at me and looking at my wife with a, a look of incredulity, like what in the world is up? Anyway, I just couldn't help myself. Well, unfortunately, I was modeling one of my character weaknesses. And after the trip was over, my son said to um, his mom, to my wife, what's up with dad? He's like all into, you know, serve others, unselfish, set an example, read the Bible, uh, talk to God, let him lead you. Uh, but it's still all about him, like with the cornbread. Well, I told that story at a, at a men's huddle I put together one time, and uh, I got a new, new nickname afterwards. It's cornbread. Uh, at least the story finishes well. I was convicted about it, and I went and talked to God about it after Stacy told me what my son had said. And I realized that it had uncovered a particular weakness in my life. Um, a type of selfishness that I labeled PCS, personal convenience selfishness. When it's convenient to me, I want it now. And PCS is ugly to other people and not good in me. So I did the best thing I've done in my adult parenting of adult kids. I called, said what I'm learning about myself to my son and apologized. And that built more respect than anything else I'd done in a long time. But you know what? That selfishness will damage our ability to be who God wants us to be. But our willingness to get humble and apologize will set us free and starts to lift our relationships with others. When I was on the 49ers, Joe Montana, a Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, threw a pass to Jerry Rice. He caught it, ran the slant, ran for a touchdown. Uh, Mike Holmgren, the quarterback coach, said, good throw, Joe. And Bill Walsh, the head coach, said, no, it's not, Mike. That's not a good enough pass. That ball was a little bit behind him in his shoulder pads. It needs to be out here, one foot in front of him, a perfect pass so that he can keep running without breaking stride. Joe Montana usually lived up to that high standard, and Mike Holmgren coached to that high standard from that point forward. Basically, there's a paradigm in the NFL where pro quarterbacks are trying to serve the ball to wide receivers at a one-foot diameter of accuracy, making it perfectly easy to catch protect their body and give them run after the catch. 
That is what they're willing to do, sacrifice to get excellent at, take a hit in the jaw to put the ball in the best spot for the receiver, hold themselves to a high standard. But you know what? In training camp, guess what they're telling the wide receivers in their meeting room? Your responsibility is if you can touch it, you must catch it, wherever it is. Wide receivers, low, high, out in front, behind, go get it. Tight ends, go up high, catch it, get your ribs blown up. We'll miss you for six or seven weeks. We'll see you in the playoffs. It's an investor mentality that sacrifices self to do the best for the teammates. You want to make the job easy for the quarterback as a receiver. You want to help him succeed, and that helps the team succeed. Meanwhile, the quarterbacks are aiming to make the receivers successful by making their job easy. This is an investor paradigm. It is very different than the American consumer paradigm that it's all about me, have it my way, have it now. And we bring that into relationships and we become consumers. And it drains the value of the relationship. Imagine if wide receivers were running across the field trying to catch a pass on third and eight. They need that first down to win the game, get to the playoffs. But the ball is thrown, let's say, behind the receiver. And he thinks, gee, if I slow down for that ball, I'm going to get hit by this safety and this safety. I don't deserve that. I deserve perfect passes right here to protect me. That consumer mentality makes him think, I don't want the ball. He bats it down, loses the catch, loses the first down, loses the drive. No touchdown, no win, no playoffs. The whole team loses because the receiver converted from an investor in what's best for the team and the quarterback to a consumer of what's best for himself. I'm not talking about football, guys. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about our selfishness in life. And I've seen it in me. So I know there's probably some of it in you. The great news is God has a different paradigm. It's the investor paradigm. Jesus set the bar for it. And God the Father, with Jesus living in us through the Holy Spirit, gives us the power to live up to it by depending on him. That's the receive principle. The opposite of love, says my friend Mark Merrill, isn't hate. It's actually selfishness. But I don't even think we understand the meaning of love that well. Jesus defined it by laying down his life for his brother. He said that's the greatest love. Love, here's, a, here's an operational definition for you and me. It desires and does what is best for another at a price to yourself. You desire and do what's best for another at a cost to yourself. That's what we bring into our relationships to lift them to a higher value and to bring out the best in others as well as in ourselves. Philippians 2 verses 3 to 5 is the investor passage of the Bible. I go back to this all the time. I'm going to paraphrase it, amplify it a little bit. Don't do anything out of pride or selfishness. Well, that rules out a lot of things we do. Choose humility and consider other people above yourself. Don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. In all of your relationships, have the same humble attitude and self-sacrificing approach as Jesus, who invested in himself to give us the very best long-term and eternal outcomes. God gave us great gifts by laying down his life. Jesus was that type of servant and investor. That's the investor model and the coaching from the scriptures. I had an executive coach one time when I was running an organization. Our board had hired this guy to coach me, uh, Dr. Scott Stixel. And one of the challenging pieces of advice he gave me that I wasn't really ready to receive at the time, but I've since seen it to be proven totally true, is this simple phrase, always seek to outbless others. Always see if you can do more positive for someone else than they do for you. It eliminates the transactional consumer approach to life. And it represents the way Jesus lifted others. So we're talking about being relationship investors. And we'll apply this right now to those most central relationships that single guys will get into eventually, most likely, and uh, many of us are in now, of husband and dad. I have a buddy, Mike. And he wanted to remind himself to be an investor. And he knew he needed to remind himself every morning. So he wrote a sticky note. He put it on the mirror. It said, would I want to be married to me? And basically, it was his trigger switch 
to calibrate himself to step away from convenience and consumption and selfishness to what's this marriage like for my wife and how can I be an investor to give her a good experience? Would I want to be married to me? Was his question that made sure that he spent the day or invested the day as a relationship investor. I want to take a look at a diagram to kind of draw this out and show you that when we invest, we create greater value in the relationship than when we consume. So the short-term approach of getting what you want now usually backfires and the value of the relationship drops. It can lead to separation and divorce in a marriage, isolation from your kid. Take a look on the left-hand axis is relationships and their quality. The higher on the axis, the higher the quality. The lower, it's a messed up relationship. On the bottom is kind of the consumer versus investor mindset to the far right. And as you move more and more into the investor approach, the closeness, the joy, the quality of the relationship rises as you can see that arrow rising. Being an investor, looking out for the interests of others, sacrificing yourself, thinking long term, makes everything better, not just for others, but for you. Happy wife, happy life, great marriage, good life for the husband and the kids and the family. It applies at work, but we got to apply it at home first. First Peter 3.7 kind of takes us into kind of Jesus's way of being a husband. It says, in the same way that Jesus submitted to his father's will and sacrificed to love us, in that same way, husbands honor, value, and prioritize your wife's concerns. Treat your wife with understanding. Man, this has been one of the biggest challenges for me. I understand what I want and what I like and what I think is normal, but I don't do a good job at getting into her shoes and understanding her, her, her heart, her styles, her desires, her feelings. But the Bible says, treat your wife with understanding. Live in an understanding way as you live together. Have gentleness, have tact, have intelligent regard for her nature her needs, the health of the marriage. Your wife may be physically weaker than you are, but she's your equal partner in God's gift of this new eternal life. Give her honor and respect so your prayers will not be hindered or ineffective. Man, this is some serious coaching for husbanding. It's the investor model, not the consumer model. Ephesians, Paul talks uh, about this just like Peter did. Ephesians 4, chapter 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And I'm going to unpack this in, on your uh, handout slowly, and you can fill in uh, kind of the rich meaning and coaching of this passage for us husbands. It says, live together. I think that means weave your time, your schedule, your interests, your money, your activities, your chores, your dates. Weave those things together. Write down in that line anything that that means to you. What does it mean to really live together, united with your wife? How do you weave? What do you need to weave together? The second point is with all humility. I consider that appreciating her, considering her, serving her, apologizing first, forgiving first. Those are humble things like Jesus. What is it to you represents humility? Write it in there. And gentleness. Wives need to trust us. They need to feel safe with us. They won't open up their heart or give their body to us in a comfortable, healthy way unless they feel safe with us, like we've protected them in their emotions and their heart. This is gentleness. And with patience. Live with your wife with humility, gentleness, and patience. I'm not always patient, but investors... They're willing to wait for a return on the investment. Are we that way in our marriage? Are we impatient and selfish and short-term? Bearing with one another in love. That means persevering and putting up with some of the natural fallibilities, faults, quirks, weaknesses, sins of your wife. You're imperfect, she's imperfect. Bear with those imperfections. Hang in there for the long run. You're going to suffer some, but that's love. Persevere. You're both imperfect, and you're lucky if she's persevering with you and your imperfections. And then the Bible says to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is God's Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are united totally. We want to maintain unity. A triple braided cord 
of God, Jeff and Stacy, God, wife and husband, is much stronger than just a husband and wife trying to make it stick. So get close to God and make him the glue that holds you together. Being humble is one of the best ways to be spiritual. You don't have to be Mr. Bible knowledge or the greatest prayer. Just be humble and say, babe, let me pray for God's blessing over us. Let me hold your hand. I'm sorry about what I did there. I want to get back together with you. And the bond of peace is how the verse finishes. You know what? Who, the one who's responsible for the peace in the marriage is the husband. You're the responsible one. You're not more equal. You're not of more value. You're not the boss. But like Christ, you're the responsible one to bring the rescue, the salvation, and the healing. So be bonded to your wife for the purpose of peace so you can be one. You're the responsible one. You're the peacemaker. You're the first to pray, the first to heal. Here's a couple investor strategies for husbands. If we're to be investor husbands like Jesus was an investor savior, an investor lord, an investor friend, we need to love our wife by choosing her. Not just the first time, but consistently. And especially in the moments where she wonders if your work's more important, or if coaching the Little League team is more important, or if your mountain biking or golf is more important, whatever. She needs to know you're choosing her. I messed up one time trying to do something good. It turned out bad. Um, I was taking care of a receipt in our finances, which I'm kind of an ADD forgetful guy. And I took the receipt, ran upstairs, wanted to point it out to Stacy, make sure we handled it correctly. But she was at the computer looking at a, a slideshow of wedding photos of one of our sons and uh, didn't know how to pause the slideshow and said, hey, I can't really look at that right now. I'm busy with this. And I said, this will just take a second. And I thought I was doing something good, taking care of a financial thing that she'd be happy I was doing. And I kept kind of forcing the issue. And I interrupted her so many times that she pressed a button and deleted the slideshow. She had to start all over later on, but I hurt her feelings. She got angry. I got defensive. She got more angry. I made it about the way she was speaking to me instead of about what I'd done to her. And pretty soon I said, time out. This isn't working. I got to go downstairs. I went downstairs and the receive principle came into play. I sat down in my chair and I said, God, why does this happen so many times in our marriage? These dumb little conflicts where we start battling each other. I hate the way she talks to me and then I defend myself and then I hurt her feelings and then I make her cry. And I heard God, kind of like Jack Nicholson in that movie, say, you want the truth? I don't know if you can handle the truth. And I said, yeah, I do. And here's what I heard. Jeff, you care more about your feelings than you do Stacy's feelings. You don't like the feeling of listening to her speak to you to make you feel like a failure so much that it makes you defend and then speak to her about some little thing like the tone of voice she's using instead of making the main issue the fact that you made a mistake, you forgot about something, you offended her, you hurt her feelings, and now you simply need to heal the relationship by apologizing and taking responsibility. So if you want this relationship to change, Jeff, and this dynamic, you have to change. I'm not just going to wave a wand and fix it. It's you. Well, I heard that message. I received it. It was like God was speaking to me. I went upstairs. I got down on my knee face to face with her sitting in a chair. And I apologized. I said, baby, I blew that. I made it worse. I defended myself. Uh, I complained about the way you spoke to me. Um, I caused you to feel like I don't care at all for your feelings because I turned it around to me being the victim. Will you please forgive me? I am sorry. I was wrong. And then I said this. I said, I want to change. Will you pray for me? That complete apology, inspired by receiving from God, because I said, God, I, I, I need help on this, caused her to start tearing up and crying, and she reached around and hugged me. We were reconciled absolutely immediately because I didn't do it in my own strength. I asked God to help me. And I got out of consuming and back into investing very quickly through a simple apology. Humility heals and pride divides. The investor is into humility. The consumer is into pride. The investor formula works. The pride formula started by Satan. It fails and it divides and it creates death. Love your wife by choosing her over and over and over. Number two, lead your wife by serving her. Husbands are to be servants. 
Jesus came to serve. That's our role model. Uh, I knew that I'm not good at this, and her love language is serve. My love language is physical touch and words of affirmation, and those two don't connect all that often, so I had to train myself to speak service. So I wrote a little sign, SST, serve Stacy today, and I put the sticky on my mirror like my friend Mike did. Well, guess what? Whenever she'd say something or I thought of something to do to serve her, I'd, I'd think oh, I'll do that a little bit later, but I'd forget it because I'm distractible, and so I had to change my little sticky note coaching to SSN, serve Stacy now. And that has helped me stay in the investor mode in an area that's not as natural to me. That's my way of leading by serving. What's your way? The third key to being an investor husband is loyalty and loyalty comes through exclusivity. There's a comedian slash pastor, crazy guy, Mark Gunger. He asks guys if they want to know the number one key to having a great sex life. And the guys are all, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he kind of hits them with the punchline. He said, it's exclusivity. If you choose one woman for your excitement and your thrills and your sensual satisfaction and your focus, you will channel all your energies into her. And that exclusivity will bless the relationship and the sexual enjoyment that bonding and unity that God wired into marriage as a blessing and a bonding agent. Exclusivity, and that means definitely not porn, definitely not a physical affair, definitely not an emotional affair, definitely not friendships with women where you talk about things that you wouldn't want your wife to know about or that you, she wouldn't want you to talk to them about. Exclusivity, where are your eyes going? as you go to the beach, as you walk through the airport, um, on television, on TV, on your phone. Obviously, porn is a huge killer of exclusivity, and it creates comparison, which makes you even less thankful for the blessed gift of your wife that God gave you. We need to get into exclusivity as a way to be loyal to our wives. Um, cool tip. If your marriage isn't doing so well, I got this from Gary Smalley years ago. He said, maybe you don't want to go to counseling. Maybe she doesn't want to go to counseling, though he recommends it. Maybe you don't have the money for it, but you have a built-in free counselor. It's your wife. All you need to do is find a peaceful moment and ask the question, zero to 10, how's our relationship doing? And then humbly listen to her answer. Log it away. If you need to go write it down, privately do. But she will give you a game plan. So you're saying zero to 10, how's our relationship? And she rates it. It's probably lower than you thought. Then you say, what would it take to move it closer to a 10? And that's the game plan that you're going to go write down, memorize, talk to your huddle buddy about, pray and ask God for help to do it because we can't do anything on our, own, on our own. And you start investing with the help of your free counselor. Dads, here's a tip for us. Um, it's called the Dad Dare. We're talking about this at the Fatherhood Commission, helping dads ask one question that will transform the relationship with their kids. And you don't just do it once. You might do it multiple times at different stages of life. But you ask this question, what can I do to love you better? How can I better love you? That question will open your child's heart and mouth to give you the guidance so that you have a better game plan for how to love them. But you got to be humble and say thank you for the answer, not defend yourself or argue or get upset. Same question can work for our wives. In the book, I go deeper into fathering and kind of the way that you need to receive from God the strategy of what to do with your kid at the time rather than just apply some formula. Uh, each kid is unique. And the strategy God gives you will meet their uniqueness and meet the moment. That's crucial. I, I had a son I was trying to discipline to confess that he yelled this cuss word in the backyard playing baseball with his friends, and he wouldn't confess it. And I kept kind of trying to get him to force it so we could deal with it and he could apologize and, and I could discipline him. Um, it wouldn't work. A week later, we were actually walking in a creek, and he was asking me to pick up the rocks he was only like seven years old, eight years old, maybe nine, uh, pick up the rock so he could hunt for crawdads. And I was serving him on his terms, hanging out with him, building a relationship. And I had dropped back and I wasn't haranguing him on that issue anymore with my wife's advice. And uh, he said, Dad, remember that uh, thing you were talking to me about, that word? I said it. 
I'm sorry. The relational connection allowed his confession and God's wisdom would, would have been way better than me trying to be Mr. Disciplinarian at the beginning. Listen to your father in heaven for guidance on how to father your kids. That way you won't frustrate them, which is one of the key coachings in the Bible that we shouldn't frustrate our kids. Well, part of being a man is facing reality, which I've talked about blitzes. Uh, blitzes aren't just danger and crisis. They're also opportunity. But Jesus modeled how to handle blitzes and we'd rather avoid them but he said hey in this world you're going to get blitz so be prepared for them i've overcome them depend on me so we need an opportunity attitude about blitzes they're going to come jesus said it um, joseph had an opportunity mindset genesis 50 verse 20 uh, i mentioned this that when his brothers were scared that he'd take retribution and punish them for all the terrible things they did to him the blitzes of his lifetime slavery um, leaving his family, going to another country, he said, hey, don't worry. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He saw the opportunity in God's hands that everything can work for good if you're called according to his purpose. And I want to give us a quick coaching from Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, on how to face blitzes in the manner Jesus did, in the manner Paul did. It was blitzed quite a bit. And it starts with gratitude and joy that you've been given the greatest treasure ever. Forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption by God, a place in heaven, which isn't going to be boring. It's going to be a wild, amazing paradise, better than the earth's ever been. He's going to recreate everything. And you will be sharing in the glory of Christ forever and ever and ever. That treasure is so big that anything on earth should pale in comparison. So the trials we face on earth shouldn't blow us away or make us lose our joy and our spirit, or make us panic, because we've already been given the greatest victory. So Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Rejoice in the peace you have with God, and the sure hope you have of eternal glory shared with Him. But then verse 3, 4, and 5 say, But also rejoice in your blitzes. That's the NFL version of the Bible. I think the NIV uh, says, Rejoice in your tribulation in persecutions, in trials, and difficulties. Because tribulation brings about perseverance and faith, and perseverance brings about character like Christ, and character like Christ brings more hope, eternal hope in heaven. Remember Jesus, for the joy and the hope set before him, he was willing to endure the cross. We can face our blitzes if we know the hope that we have. And then it says finally that the love of God is poured out in our hearts by God's Holy Spirit when we go through trials and tribulation and difficulty and blitzes, but we hold on to the greatest treasure, our faith and our secure future with God. You need to write down Romans 5, 1 to 5, unpack it, study it. That's your game plan for how to face blitzes. So ask yourself, do I have an opportunity attitude over blitzes or am I just trying to avoid them? NFL teams definitely expect blitzes and have a game plan for them. Do you have a plan? I'm going to hit this real quick, but here is a threefold plan about facing blitzes. Number one, have a long-term view. See the long-term. You're not just playing that play or that one series or that, that one quarter of the game. You're in it for the long haul. The long term is that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay? Number two, you need to be humble and willing to change. When the blitz comes, the quarterback has got to audibleize or sight adjust. He can't drop back as deep. The receiver is going to change the route. But there may be no free safety, and he may throw the bomb over the middle for the touchdown, and the quarterback might find out about it on his back. But the touchdown was worth it. But that came about because he was humble enough to change the play instead of saying, no, we're going to run the same play. Are you humble enough to apologize, to forgive, to stop spending all your money, to start giving some of your money away, to be more interested in your kids, to build better relationships, to try things differently? Are you humble enough to be willing to change? That's strategy number two. Have a long-term view, be willing to change. And number three, 
is get your eyes off yourself and focus on blessing others. It's basically be an investor in relationships and people. It's what Jesus did. He invested himself. Focus on blessing others. Try to out-bless others. The passage in Philippians 2 that we covered is the quintessential investor passage. Uh, Do nothing from selfishness or pride, but in humility, consider other people more important and look out for their interests, not just your own interests. Have a humble attitude in your relationships like Jesus, who laid down his life. All right. I want to move on to one of the areas of blitzes, um, of secrets, of explosions and bombs. Um, And yet it's an area that is really beautiful and lovely and powerful and bonding and created by God and good. It's sex. And there's one great designed place for it, marriage. Outside of that, things start to malfunction and go off track. And we have a culture that hasn't been teaching the truth about God's design for something great that he invented. I told you my risk areas, one of them is kind of a a, a hunger or a lust for significance. Uh, That's kind of the lust of the world. The other is the lust of the eyes. My eyes want to take in uh, the beauty of the female body, even when God gave me my one wife and I want to focus there. And so I got to be careful with my eyes. Those are my challenges. Letting good things dominate us is trouble. We need the best thing, which is loyalty to our wife and God above that. Outside design, secrets develop. You're going to get blitzed. A bomb may explode. Attraction to the female body is natural. But lust and then comparison and then consuming that's when things go haywire. And frankly, our brains will get rewired when we go off track and don't do things God's way. That's what porn is doing. It's literally rewiring brains. And guys are losing their ability to enjoy sex or even perform sexually. And they're also losing all concept of exclusivity and they're stuck with comparison, which is gonna mess up a marriage. The counterfeits in this culture are poisoning pleasure. People become pleasure addicts but can't even enjoy it anymore. And I'm not, I'm not uh, making a giant deal uh, about porn other than a good 90% of guys struggle with it. And today, 30 40% of women struggle with it. It's been so normalized. Um, it's just an example of, of one of the blitzes that God can help us escape. But we've got to be honest and real and face it with a team uh, and humility. And it's basically a delivery system for lust. And it's been made possible on our phones and everything else. So it's a great area to disclose what's going on with a friend and practice how horizontal confession strengthens vertical apology and confession to God. And we can then start helping other guys get out of this trial and start being real. But if we're going to diffuse the bomb of lust, the bomb of porn, we've got to diffuse shame. Because shame is an enemy tool of Satan that labels you as bad, whereas guilt is God's tool of the Holy Spirit that says, hey, you went off track, you did something bad, you did something wrong, you apologize, and you get back on track, he forgives you. Shame says, you are bad, you cannot change, you're disqualified. There was a great line in this movie uh, called Paul's Promise that says, shame eats away the belief that we can change. It makes you isolate and give up. Shame eats away the the belief that we can change. Shame is a negative message from the enemy. Guilt is a positive message from God. Get back on track. We need to diffuse shame. And that means start being real. And you can't do that without a couple good friends, deep level five friends. So I want to give you three quick stories in this area of, of secrets and sex, and the bombs that can go off when it gets out of track. Uh, All three ended ended well, but two of them went through some really hellish circumstances before ending well. Uh, The first one is a young guy, college guy named Reese. Uh, Reese is a great role model and leader of young men these days. 
when he was in college, he had a struggle with lust and porn, and he was at this uh, camp with a friend of his, and he thought, I really would like to talk to him about it and kind of get over this problem by, by confessing it and telling him, uh, but I'm afraid what he'll think of me. He just said, I'm going to do it. And one night he told the guy, hey, I struggle with lust and, and porn. And the other guy said, dude, thanks for telling me. I, I do too. And then they started talking about what they could do to help each other. And they pretty much diffused that problem, got strong together, and it's never been a problem in his life. The second guy I want to talk about, a uh, successful young husband and dad, a really winsome guy, uh, knew Jesus and God and the Bible, was active in church groups. He'd been in an accountability group for like 10, 15 years. But a secret life had developed because porn got into his life early. And he never confessed fully, he just confessed little things, so he'd keep people off the track. And he developed a full-blown sex addiction. Not just the porn addiction, but sex addiction. Infidelities and hookups and dangerous things that were totally anathema to what he believed. And he couldn't figure out how to get out of it. He thought it would kill his wife if he admitted it and told her. Almost wanted to die. Well, he ended up getting caught. Um, it shocked her and the family was struggling and everything looked terrible. And some people said men don't recover from this type of sex addiction. Um, but the wife separated for the purpose of healing. The man accepted the help and some friends supported him to go away to a, a place that gave him therapy for like six weeks. He tackled it head on. He jumped into uh, support groups. He got a sponsor. He treated it like a full-blown addiction. And he found God in a totally new and graceful way. And after nine months, they got back into counseling. Today, their marriage is better than it ever was before when there was a degree of pretending and secrecy. Blitzes can turn good in the hands of God. But there was a painful chapter there for a while because he let the lying and the secret go on for so long. The third story was even more painful. It went on for a long time. And it's a guy that was a mega success in business, a private jet, all sorts of property, a ton of money, um, big stature, big in philanthropy and giving money away to churches and Christian causes and stuff. But his secret life from porn and the ability to keep lying about things grew into the same world of infidelities and a secret life. Uh, and it got blown up. And he thought he was going to, like, die. But his wife showed incredible grace to him. And God told her to treat him the way Jesus would treat him. And she wanted to love him towards healing. And he also saw God's grace, not only in his wife, but in the gospel. It humbled him. He got real, got the help he needed. God transformed him. They rebuilt their marriage, kept their family together. And now he is helping other men heal. And he said, I've learned the problem. The root was lying. I picked up lying when I was young and I kept it going until the lies were way bigger. And he said, there's an antidote that I use for, for lying. The antidote is to always correct myself immediately. When you're bragging about something and you overstate something, you know what, that's not right. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't shoot a 75, it was a 79. You know, whatever, correct yourself right away. Get rid of your lying. In fact, he had this amazing experience where he felt God talked to him and God said, if you will face this directly and lie no more, I will constantly and always be with you. That voice of God set him free to be truthful and honest and not worry what people thought about him. Interestingly, he said some great friends did come out of the work, woodwork and supported him far more than he thought. We need to get honest, quit lying, face reality, Address the junk and the trauma in your life, both the stuff done to you and the stuff you've done. And to do it, you got to get help. A, you talk to a couple of trusted friends, but B, you get help from a, a therapist or a counselor or whoever the specialist is. And you let God take over your life. He can get you out of this. You can't do it on your own. I was at a, a fatherhood summit with a bunch of my friends from the Fatherhood Commission and uh, Steve Arterburn, the founder of New Life Ministries, who's been counseling people for 40 years how to get out of the terrible ruts of life, porn and sex addiction and alcohol addiction, drug addiction, um, trauma, PTSD, all sorts of things. Uh, I said, Steve, what's the key? Is there like a real essential game plan and pathway for healing? He said, yeah, here's what I've discovered. 
I'm going to lay it out right here before you. This is from Steve Arterburn of New Life Ministries. Number one, surrender it. Can you bring this up on the screen? Surrender it. The key to that is humility. You can underline that. Number two is you got to see it. This is acceptance. Accept the reality of the situation. Many times it helps to have friends that see it with you. Third, you need to say it. That's admitting it. Saying it to a friend or two, not on TV, not on Twitter, but confessing it. Say it. This is the horizontal confession I talked about. Fourth, you need to own it. Take responsibility and not excuse and blame someone else. Responsibility. Fifth is release it. Let God own the future and how to heal from it. Release it. Forgive yourself because God's already forgiven you. Forgive someone else who you've been bitter towards because you're locked up and they didn't even know that you're always mad at them. Forgiveness. Release it. Number six is reverse it. In other words, you need to turn and go another direction, and that needs a proactive choice. This is transformation. This is sustainable change. You need to receive God's new direction and, 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 and help and huddle with friends so you can go another direction with that sustainability. And that's what the last one is. Preserve it. After you turn and start going a different direction, you need to preserve it through the connection of your team. This is your huddle. This is your friends. This is your level five um, brothers that will walk with you for the long term and help you stay healed from whatever trapped you in the past. Huddling is a great way to transform life and sustain transformed lives. David committed a pretty big sin. Stole a guy's wife, had the guy killed, didn't confess it for a while, but when he did, he confessed it fully, and he was mentioned as a man after God's own heart. So it wasn't the uh, lack of making terrible mistakes that described a man's heart. It was his willingness to repent. David said in Psalm 32, When I refused to confess my sin, not face it, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. He was feeling the guilt. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. It tore him up. But he says later, when I confessed it, I was set free. James 5.16 tells us how to do it. Confess your sins to one another, those couple trusted friends, and pray for each other that you may be healed. Not just forgiven, that comes from God, but healed means transformed. You reverse it and you preserve it. Let's look again at horizontal confession. It's the vertical to God that forgives you. It's the horizontal, in this case to Pete and Greg, my two level five friends that I huddle with weekly. When I confess what I'm struggling with or what I send in to them, I have so much more strength to not go there again. And they frankly get strength to not go there with their struggle area. Don't be like the guy on the left that just confesses his sins to God in isolation. Build a team of huddle, huddling friends, level five friends, and practice James 5, 16. Well, what's your step? There's something going on in you. There's some struggle. There's some blitz. There's some addiction. There's some obsession. Uh, there's some sin. There is in me. What, what is it for you? And what's your step to deal with it? I'm telling you, surrender to God and follow his ways of friendship and transparency and being vulnerable to trusted friends will turn the tide and get you going the other way. But you got to decide, what are you going to do? So listen to him. Find out what your next step is. We were designed not just to be set free, but then to live out our mission. And our mission is to glorify God by being the best we can be at what we do in a way that points people and credit to Jesus and reconciles people. Now, it's an impossible mission. I can't do it. I'm going to fail. I'm going to blow it. I have a crazy phrase for it called mission impossible. Through him, all things are possible. If it's about him and we receive the strength and the guidance to do it from him, then he'll make it possible and he'll get the credit and we won't get messed up by the glory or the praise or the credit that might come to us. God's ways work with him at the center. 
Our identity as a son of God commands our destiny. So we're going to live from our identity, not for it. Our meaning and our purpose, those are going to flow from God's love and his commissioning of us as his sons and his ambassadors to represent him on earth. Whether you're a school teacher or a coach or a technologist or an artist, a leader, do it to your best to glorify God. You're always on mission, by the way, no matter where you are. We don't act like it many times because we don't know that it all counts, but it's all counting for God. Tony Bennett is a great uh, basketball coach, University of Virginia, won a national championship, quite the underdog team that got it done. But he said this about purpose in life, when it's connected to God or not connected to God. He said, in my life, if it's just about winning championships, if it's just about being the best, then I'm running the wrong race. That's empty. But if it's about trying to be excellent and do things the right way to honor the university that hired me, the athletic director I work for, and the young men I'm coaching, always in the process trying to bring glory to God, then that's the right thing. <coughs> he didn't just talk religion and God. He wants to do well for his athletic director, his boss, for the university, for the students, to be the best, to be excellent. But do you see the undercurrent? Always bringing honor to God, which means stay humble and use it for his glory. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's your job description. It's written down in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's my paraphrase of this amazing missional passage that applies to every man who is an adopted son of the king. When you receive Jesus Christ, the old you is gone. A new you has come because I, God, brought you back as my son. You are forgiven, you are accepted, and you are right in my eyes since I put the righteousness of Christ in you. I'm inviting the world to come back into my family, and you're in this with me. I give you a mission. I give you a message, and I give you a title. You're an ambassador for Christ. Your mission is reconciliation. Your message is that God reconciles people. Please return to him. My buddy Rich uh, works in finance and investments, and he left the company, and he still goes on the golf trips with the guys from that company, which he enjoyed golf and the fraternity. And uh, he got there early for one of their annual golf trips, and he met up with another guy, and they took a ride to the hotel, and they were going to be there before anyone else and have dinner. And uh, the guy said, hey, after dinner, Rich, we'll be done early. Uh, there's a great strip bar nearby here. You want to go there? And Rich was like, uh, no. He said, no, seriously, it's awesome. I've been there before. Come on, let's go. And, and Rich was being pressed by the guy. And uh, so he said, well, no, I really don't want to go. And the guy said, why? He said, well, I'm married. Um, and that's one reason. If I get myself all riled up looking at those women, I, I can't do anything with it because I'm not with my wife and I want to stay loyal to her. Uh, plus, you know that I'm a, a Jesus follower. And his ways don't encourage me to view women in that way or to dishonor my wife. Uh, so, no, I'm not interested, but thanks. Well, a year goes by. They go on the same trip. The guy and Rich are driving in the car to the hotel, and the guy hits Rich on the thigh and says, Rich, you'll never guess what happened. He said, what? He said, I'm one of you now. And Rich said, what? He said, yeah, I'm one of you. I I'm a Christian. When you said no to that strip bar and kind of told me about your wife and God, I thought, geez, I've been divorced a couple of times. My present marriage isn't going well. I'm doing the stuff I want. And it's not working out. I should check out this, this God thing, this Christianity thing. So I started reading the Bible, and I found out that Jesus is the answer, and I'm a Christian now. He says, it's all because you wouldn't go to a strip bar. <laughs> I love that story. I call Rich uh, the ambassador in a golf shirt, uh, an ambassador to the strip bar going business guys. You know what? You represent God wherever you go, and you don't need to be a preachy, perfect guy. You just need to be loyal to God. Listen to what he says. It'll plant seeds. I'm wondering what God's saying to you about your purpose in life, your mission in life. Are you living missionally? Are you living with that big purpose? Are you acting like an ambassador for Christ? Do you see the, the kingdom of God that you're adding to? in your job as an accountant or a marketer or a salesman, um, how you treat people, um, how you steward your career, 
what you do in relationships, who you give the credit to. Maybe not. A lot of us haven't put thought into that, but now's the time. Ask God, Father God, to give you your why, your meaning, your purpose. Make your life missional. And part of the way you do that is by making a significant choice that many of us have never made, which is basically transferring the ownership of your life from yourself to the better owner, the best owner, God, the one that invented you, made you, saved you, indwells you, and wrote the book on what works and what doesn't work. I was uh, mentoring and coaching a, a business CEO. Uh, we spent a day uh, that he asked for skiing, and we did a bunch of talking on the chairlifts with a two-minute run, and then some more talking, and I just asked him question after question after question to help him unpack a dilemma he was facing. And uh, toward the end of it, it had to do with his business and transition and ownership and what to do with it um, and some other issues that they were struggling with at the time. And uh, I said, Steve, you know God. You're a mature Christian. You know the Bible. You've been serving him longer than me. Uh, why is it with all that maturity and all that experience that you're still struggling so much with this situation? Why is it tearing you up? And he said, well, Jeff, I, I, I think it's probably because I'm still owning it. I'm still owning the business and all the questions that I have about how, how it's going to turn out in the future. I said, well, Steve, if you had a Lexus and, and you didn't want to own it anymore, but you wanted, like, me to own it, what would you do? He said, well, I'd get the keys, I'd get out of the driver's seat, I'd give you the keys, I'd get the title deed, I'd sign it, and I'd give you the title deed. I said, yeah, well, what if you did a title deed for your life? And so Steve and I talked, and we finished the day, and he went home and got out his uh, laptop and typed out a title deed for his life, and he signed it over to God after listing all the different aspects of his life that he could think of. He put a few scripture verses in there. And I talked to him later on. He said, hey, this thing has been amazing. I said, did your business turn around? He said, no, things are still tough there. Uh, but my attitude has changed. I feel peace. I'm not worried about it anymore. And my marriage is way better. Steve turned over the title deed of his life to a better owner who could steward the business which, in fact, at this point now, he's had some amazing answers to the problems and questions he was asking then, and God has shown faithful there, but he's also had the relational peace with his wife and the peace over stress that he didn't have before. About two, three months later, I wrote a title deed for my life. I want to make sure God was prompting me to do it, and I have a sample I want to throw, throw up on the, the screen. I think we have it, um, but it's a title deed to my life on the left-hand side, I said, you know, in the beginning, God existed. He's the king. He's the sovereign. He's working all things to his good and his glory. He's completely, perfectly good, so I can trust him. He's a better owner than me. He's total love. He's truth. He's compassion. He's wisdom. He's joy. And then I said, he owns me. He created me. He saved me. He purchased me at the highest price of Christ. So I said a little prayer. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I trust you and I give you ownership of all aspects of my life. And I put a couple of scripture verses and on the other side, on the right-hand side that you can see, I listed everything from my concept of God to my concept of myself, down to my sexual thoughts and behavior, temptations. There's an interesting one, my eating, drinking, appetites, and stress relievers. And of course, bank accounts and attitudes in the future, your time. I signed that title deed, and the practical impact of it is that there'll be a day where I get up and jump in the shower and my brain starts ideating and thinking about all these cool things I want to do, something I want to get, uh, something I want to talk to someone about, some visionary plan. And then I stop myself and say, wait a minute, my brain belongs to God. These ideas belong to God. If he wants me to think about them, then I will. But I say, God, I'm your son. I signed ownership over to you. Will you be in charge? That has caught me many times from running down a road that is totally me, but not under God's guidance and ownership and excellent control. 1 Corinthians 6.20, it was in my uh, title deed. It says, God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. And I think your body includes everything about you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust God completely. Don't trust your own thinking. Prioritize God in all your ways. Let him be the owner and let his thinking drive the ship. 
I mentioned the critical decision that many of us don't make. Crawford Loritz, the pastor, uh, said basically a lot of people accept salvation, but they never give ownership of their life to God, so they never enjoy peace. They don't enjoy the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't have that vibrant joy. They're not making a difference for the kingdom. They don't really get their why. These passages talk about shifting our operating system from us being in charge and owning it to God being in charge. Look at Romans 1. Actually, that's Romans uh, 12, excuse me. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Because of everything God's done to save us and bring us back into his family, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of his mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, pleasing. This is your true, proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which the Bible is very good at. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Galatians, hey, I've been crucified. It's no longer me lives, but Christ who lives in me. Mark, Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow me, give it all up. Let go of your life, and I'll give you real life. That's the good news. Let go, and God gives us a better life. Check out this diagram and test yourself. How much of your ownership have you given to God? If you're at the bottom of the chart, 0% to God means you're owning it. It's me. I hope that we're moving in the direction of giving God 100% ownership because that means your life is in better hands. It doesn't mean the circumstances are easy, but it means there's peace and guidance and joy in whatever happens. Give God ownership, and let's move toward that 100%. The title deed is an exercise that can help you do that if God guides you to do that. My journey has been one of being refathered, not just getting my identity from him, but starting to listen every minute for the Father's guidance the way Jesus lived. And that has set me free from my struggle for more significance. It's given me more freedom to admit who I am and what my weaknesses are, to be honest with my friends, to confess my struggles and sins to Pete and, and to Greg, uh, to John and Dave, other guys that I huddle with. Um, and in doing so, I'm more self-aware and I can stay out of the weeds of the bad decisions and the obsessions or addictions, and I can get back on track with God. That same pathway is there for you as a son of the Father, living by the receive principle, transforming to be conformed to the image of Christ, always being more and more like Christ and letting blitzes and challenges do that to you. And then huddling. Huddling helps you change. Level five friends, friendship helps you change. It sustains life change. And then living for your mission of lift. But all of this only really, really makes sense well when you give him the ownership. And I will admit that doing these things is impossible. That's why I call it mission him possible. Uh, but with him, all things are possible. I was uh, in Seattle when we had a power outage and I went outside pulled the cord on my generator about 20 times, got it started, and all of a sudden my generator was powering our house. But our neighbor, her husband was out of town, she called and said, I can't get ours started. I ran up the street, I'm not Mr. Handy, but I thought I can help her. And uh, she had a beautiful, brand new, electric key start Honda generator, but the battery was dead as I tried it, and I got an idea. I said, this thing has a battery recharger. Do you have an extension cord? So Jenny gave me the extension cord. I plugged it in, ran inside the garage, looked for an outlet, plugged it in, came back all excited. I got some juice flowing into this battery recharger. I'm going to get it started. Then we can power the house. And she and I made eye contact, and she and I just started busting up laughing at the same time because I was in an electrical power death loop trying to recharge the battery with power from the house to start the generator to power the house that had no power. Isn't it? Isn't it like that when we get an idea of how to live for God, how to be a man, how to be a good man, how to be a Christian, but we try to do it on our own strength? The whole key is surrender ownership to God. Let Christ abide in you. Then he is the confidence, not self-confidence, but God-confidence. And he's the power that lets us live as a real and good man in the model of Jesus. So guys, be a receiver. As a man, be a receiver. Your identity and your guidance as a son. In Christ, you're a good man. Be honest and be real. 
if he believes well of you, you can handle what the crowd thinks. And I want to resource you in all these areas, particularly though in level five friendship and huddling consistently with your friends. So go connect at uh, menhuddle.com and, and grab the level five friendship playbook. And you'll also be able to pre-order pretty soon the receive book, uh, The Way of Jesus for Men. It's coming out probably in November. Uh, and that's at menhuddle.com. And I just want to remind you the same thing I've been saying, to live by receiving and to start each morning as a son. Let me pray. Father God, we can't do this, but you can. Uh, we want you to own us. Show us how we can give you the title deed and uh, make us into the men that Jesus wants us to be and that you as Father uh, can empower us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.